X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon. It's Friday, March 26th. Today, back in the day, in 1812, the Boston Gazette printed the first use of the term gerrymandering. The word itself is a portmanteau of the name Gary and the animal salamander. The Gary referenced was Massachusetts Governor Elbridge Gary, who had redrawn the state's election districts in favor of the Democratic-Republican Party. One of the new districts was said to look like a mythical salamander in its odd shape. The Boston Gazette, published 209 years ago today, featured a political cartoon featuring the new districts redrawn as a sort of disfigured dragon. The cartoon is often credited to artist Elkana Tisdale, although scholars still debate the originator of the term gerrymandering itself. The word was accepted into the dictionary in 1848. Despite the former governor's name being pronounced with a hard G, most people pronounce the word with a soft G. This is true in most places, except for Marblehead, Massachusetts, Gary's hometown, where people still pronounce the word with his name in mind. Today, back in the day in 1979, Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin signed the Egypt-Israel Peace Treaty. The Egyptian president and the Israeli prime minister had met for negotiations at Camp David in 1978, which resulted in the Camp David Accords. The Accords set a framework for a peace treaty in which both countries would recognize each other, normalize their relations, and demilitarize certain areas. The normalization of relations took place in 1980. Ambassadors were exchanged in February of that year, and crude oil sales began shortly after. The countries agreed to establish a multinational observer force in the Sinai Peninsula to ensure demilitarization of the area. The treaty was polarizing to the international community. On the one hand, it promised a future of peace, as Egypt was the first Arab nation to formally recognize Israel's statehood. On the other hand, many critics say that Palestinians were left behind in the treaty. Two years after the signing, Sadat was assassinated. Today, back in the day in 2016, Jane Sanders Stadium opened for its first game. The University of Oregon replaced the former Howe Field with the new stadium to great success. Jane Sanders Stadium is located at the corner of 18th Avenue and University Street. On opening day, the Ducks beat Stanford 2-0 to a sold-out crowd. The new stadium featured improved locker rooms, 1,438 seats, and a $250,000 video board, among other improvements. The project was started by Bob Sanders in honor of his wife, Jane, who he met while playing football at the University of Oregon in the 1940s. Their daughter, Molly, threw the ceremonial first pitch. Today, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Kim McCarty and Koya Crespin with Community Alliance of Tenants. X-ray. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. The Oregon Senate approved a bill banning firearms in the Capitol and state buildings. The bill, SB 554, passed with a 16 to 7 vote on Thursday. It succeeded despite fierce opposition from Republicans. 
Previously, people with concealed carry licenses were allowed to possess firearms in Oregon's public buildings. This bill closes that loophole. Additionally, SB 554 would let local governments, school districts, and universities create their own gun restrictions. Finally, it would increase the cost of obtaining a concealed carry license from $50 to $100. Republicans made no less than eight motions to table the bill. They objected to the bill's focus on those who can legally carry and conceal a gun. They also criticized Democrats for passing the bill after only one four-hour hearing for public testimony. Gun control measures have received renewed attention nationwide in the wake of several high-profile mass shootings. Portland, too, has seen an increase in gun violence over the past year. Senate Bill 554 will now move on to the Oregon House of Representatives. Here's your daily dose of data. On Thursday, the Oregon Health Authority confirmed 422 new COVID-related cases and two new deaths. To date, 2,370 people have died. 108 people are currently hospitalized with the virus. OHA has reported that Coos County has moved to Phase 1B Group 6. Coos County joins 21 other counties who can offer vaccinations to extended eligibility groups. The OHA accidentally sent 11,000 ineligible vaccination invites. OHA Director Patrick Allen apologized for the error on Wednesday and said, quote, in addition to sending names that were eligible on Monday, we sent 11,000 names that weren't. The Oregon Health Authority shares information with its partner organization, All for Oregon. Since February, All for Oregon has been gathering this information to schedule vaccine appointments at the Oregon Convention Center. But on Monday, the OHA accidentally sent All for Oregon the names of 11,000 people who would not be eligible for vaccines until April 19th. The mistake proved especially frustrating for people like Ron Wimsett, who has been eagerly waiting for his opportunity to be vaccinated. After receiving a second email from the OHA clarifying the error, Wimsett said, quote, I'm a frontline worker and I work in the IT profession and I have to deal with employees pretty regularly. So for me, it was a great relief to get vaccinated and to learn that it was a management or clerical error that provided that for me. It made me feel unfortunate. The Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde have released plans for a Willamette Falls site. The location, known as the Blue Heron Site, is part of the tribe's ancestral homeland. Tribal members were forcefully removed from the Willamette Falls after they ceded their land to the U.S. government in 1855. Later, the site became the location of the Blue Heron Industrial Paper Mill. So one of the first goals of the tribe is to clean up the river and land and restore native wildlife, including salmon, to the area. After restoration, the Confederated Tribes say the area may be used for housing, education, river access, community spaces, and offices. The site's design team says that the concept of healing was a central principle when drafting the project. The Confederated Tribes' plan for the Blue Heron site says, quote, This place provides significant opportunity for telling the tribe's story and increasing the tribal community's connection to its ancestral home 
at the falls. Restoration of the falls and the creation of a new place founded on a healed relationship to the river's edge will drive new economic development for current and future generations. A proposed House bill is causing conflict between farmers and farm workers. The bill, which was introduced in January, would require employers to pay farm workers overtime if they work more than 40 hours a week. Supporters of the bill say overtime rights are necessary from a fairness and equity standpoint. More than 90% of farm workers are Latino, and many of them work more than 10 hours a day. Javier Ceja Manso, a farm worker who advocated for the bill, said, quote, every dollar is very important to pay. We are forced to work without having opportunities. Farm workers were intentionally excluded from the 1983 Fair Labor Standards Act. Farmers claimed that seasonal workers didn't deserve overtime rights. They also said that their slim profit margins made them unable to afford paying overtime. But Representative Andrea Salinas, one of the 11 Democrats sponsoring the bill, said the origin of excluding farm workers was more insidious than farmers let on. In 1938, Southern politicians agreed to labor protections on the condition that agricultural workers who were primarily black would be excluded from those rights. To Representative Salinas, the history of the Fair Standards Labor Act represents, quote, a racial injustice meant to keep black people a part of slave labor. For me, this is about trying to reckon with the past and making sure we are building a future that's more equitable. Four Oregonians are currently being monitored for a possible Ebola infection. The Oregon Health Authority reported Thursday that they are in contact with four people who may have been exposed to Ebola. The four people returned from Guinea and the Democratic Republic of the Congo in early March. Smaller regions within both of these countries are currently experiencing Ebola outbreaks. Health officials say the risk of Oregonians being exposed to Ebola is low. Monitoring people who have visited Guinea or the DROC within the past 21 days is standard practice. The OHA has also reached out to international NGOs to request early notification for any people traveling to Oregon after recent visits to Guinea and the DROC. For now, the OHA says they will continue to monitor the four people to, quote, determine their risk, if any, of being exposed to Ebola, as well as the safety of their families and their community. And finally, some good news. The Wooden Shoe Tulip Festival is back. One of the earliest casualties of the pandemic was the Tulip Festival, one of Oregon's most popular spring attractions. But this year, the Wooden Shoe Farm is once more welcoming guests to enjoy over 40 acres of colorful tulip fields. The farmers expect peak tulip season to happen during the second and third weeks of April. Hot air balloons are available for rental if you want to witness the flowers from a bird's eye view. And there are daily wine tastings and tours of the wooden shoe vineyards. Social distancing guidelines are in place. Tickets must be bought online before visiting the farm. You can find more information online at woodenshoe.com. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, Kim McCarty and Koya Crespin from the Community Alliance of Tenants 
are here to talk about a recent study on the impact of the global pandemic on renters in Oregon. The Community Alliance of Tenants and Portland State University teamed up to do a survey about Oregon's renters during the pandemic. Um, a new study from Portland State University um, estimates that looming evictions could actually cost the state up to $3.3 billion. Uh, Kim McCarty and Koya Crespin are zooming in with us this morning to discuss this topic. Uh, Kim and Koya, good morning. We're, we're patched in and we're talking with uh, Kim McCarty and Koya Crespin about a new Portland State University study that estimates that looming evictions could actually cost the state up to $3.3 billion. Uh, can you give us some highlights from that survey? What's, what's going on with this? Um, yes, good morning. Um, I'm Kim McCarty. I'm the director, director at the Community Alliance of Tenants. Um, we are a statewide organization um, with a grassroots tenant control, tenant rights organization. And we've been working with Portland State University for some time now, um, following their lead and the research that they have found. And um, when you cite that figure, um, that's only talking about what people will experience um, and not even the, the rent that they have on un, unpaid you know that's what the state will be um, paying to help people get relocated to help people in foster care to help um, people who will um, most certainly experience COVID or other health related complications because of of houselessness if they were to be evicted wow so so how many Oregonians are at risk of eviction currently? Currently, um, we estimate somewhere between 90 and 100,000 households are behind in rent. And, you know, of no fault of their own, we all know that we're in a crisis right mm -hmm. now with um, low un unemployment. And um, many of those households, majority of those households have been paying part of their rent. Um, and you know, doing the best that they can, putting the rent on credit cards, you know, putting mm. off really, um, really other important expenses. Um, but as you can imagine, um, many of those households don't have a lot of confidence that they will be able to continue to doing continue doing that. So there's there's a huge risk here. So there is a cancel the rent campaign. Can you give us an overview of of this? Um, yes, and I'm, I'm going to also turn to my um, colleague, um, Koya Crespin, who's our one of our lead organizers here in the metro area. Um, the Cancel the Rent campaign is um, both local and national, and um, I wanted um, Koya to first to give you um, the, the national picture. Great. I'm Koya. Hi, Koya. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm the Portland Metro organizer, community organizer with um, Community Alliance of Tenants. Um, and yeah, you just heard Kim speak about some some local um, stats in Oregon, but um, almost 50% of renters nationwide are currently not confident they're going to be able to um, to not be evicted and mm -hmm. politicians are acting like this problem is just going to magically disappear. I think mm -hmm. that there's this 
um, real level of like cognitive dissonance almost between what's going to happen and um, and and then also for context, um, the, this housing crisis didn't just start yeah. with coronavirus, right? Um, this has been with us for decades, and uh, the the reality is that coronavirus. All it did was pull back the curtain on how much our communities live on this razor's edge, just balancing food, rent, um, medicine for their family, mm-hmm. uh, gas are right. Um, more than 47% of renters spent a third of their income on rent alone last year. Um, hmm. and this is pre pandemic. Yeah. Actually. Um, and so the Cancel the Rent campaign um, is a nationwide effort um, to stop the the bleeding from happening. I think that um, organizations like CAT have been on the front lines of this housing crisis for decades, right? Working with renters and low-income homeowners um, just to make sure that we aren't being taken advantage of by exploitative um corporate banks, corporate mm-hmm. landlords. Um, and if these long-term solutions like cancel the rent aren't provided to renters and low-income homeowners quickly, um, we're going to see a real onslaught, a real tsunami of homelessness coming in. And I say homelessness rather than houselessness, mm-hmm. because when you say houselessness, it's really just whitewashing something and making it into something more palatable to mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can go ahead and pass it back to Kim to kind of talk about the like legislative push and the real details of that. But that's Great. a little background. Thank you. Well, and and I guess to transition to you, Kim, um, you know, one of the uh, Koya, you were just talking about that this is not a new thing, um, and um, in one of the bills that you're supporting, HB twenty six seven seven, would repeal Oregon's thirty five year ban on rent control. Um, so, you know, this has been 35 years of, of, uh, uh, of preventing rent control in the state of Oregon. Um, what, what would this bill address in the rent hikes that have been burdening Portland renters for a long time? Yes, this, this is, um, a really long-term, um, concern, um, our, our renters, um, especially our communities of color, have been feeling the burden of, of rent hikes for, for decades. Um, and then we announced the housing emergency um, some years ago, acknowledging that in our current economy, um, rent was just going up and up and it wasn't keeping up with people, with um, our, our tenants and, and their incomes. But now with COVID, as you can imagine, um, we know it's very likely that landlords will be saying, I need to recover um, some of my losses. You know, everyone has had losses. And if landlords are allowed to increase rents, um, even even what's allowable here in Oregon, you know, up um, maybe as almost as high as 10%, that still will be devastating to low-income households. Um, even if a low-income household has been lucky enough to get rent assistance, pay off the past due rent um, that has happened during the eviction moratorium, 
um, if they're if they get a rent increase that might be as much as fifty dollars, a hundred dollars, that's not going to be anywhere near um, their increase in income. And so we still might see a huge wave of people um, who are going to become homeless. Um, yes, yeah. So yeah. we're speaking with Kim McCarty and Koya Crespin. Uh, with the Community Alliance of Tenants. Um, and we're talking uh, as a springboard about a Portland State uh, University uh, study that CAT uh, uh, teamed up to do about Oregon renters during the pandemic. Um, the incredible cost uh, that is potentially looming to the state to, to deal with this. So the, the pandemic has prompted the need for immediate housing relief. Um, can, how can we use this as an opportunity for long-term housing reform? Can either of you speak to, to, to our, our law, to long-term efforts and do we have a capacity, the capacity as a, as a society to, to start taking this on? Uh, first, let me just say a little bit more about cancel the rent. Um, it certainly has provisions that's about addressing the emergency, what's mm -hmm. happening right now. Yeah. So we still need an eviction moratorium um, so that we can get through what we're calling the recovery stage. Mm -hmm. And that is needed because there is um, rent assistance coming from our federal government that was not promised earlier. Now mm -hmm. that we know that it's coming, we need to have a moment where there's time for our state agencies to get that money to the landlords, get it to our tenants, um, stabilize everyone, give everyone time to recover. And we think that that recovery time is anywhere between uh, at least one to three, one to three years. So that's sort of an, a, a short term phase. Okay. Long term, um, we also in the cancel the rent campaign, you know, realize that there need there needs to be resources um, so that tenants have can um, you know have the right to purchase their buildings and stabilize their communities. Um, we need to make sure that rent assistance as it goes out the door is being targeted to the, the folks who need it the most, who've been in crisis the longest, and that's our Black and Indigenous communities primarily. Mm -hmm. um, so those are some of, of the, um, you know, the long-term strategies that, that we'll be fighting for. So last Friday was the first of several, uh, let's call it sink or swim deadlines for legislation uh, in Salem. Uh, how did the bills from the cancel the rent package fare? Um, well, one of the things that we have been fighting the hardest for is an eviction moratorium, and okay. that's not even on the table. Oh. But um, but we, we still will be being very vocal about it, just as, as we are today. What is on, on the table, um, the bill regarding the right to rest um, to prevent um, sweeps of homeless camps um, that um, was almost didn't get a hearing but it will have a hearing in April so we're really happy about that okay um, another really important piece of legislation is called Senate bill 282 4 which will provide for a grace period so the period where 
tenants were not able to pay rent and there was an, um, an, an eviction moratorium in place through June of this year, mm -hmm. um, they will have until February of 2022 to pay back that rent without um, fear of an, an eviction. Um, so that's really an important stopgap. But again, um, we, f we fear it won't um, address the people who are still in the recovery phase who may not have a job to pay July rent and um, or may not have access yet to that money um, that will be available to them through rent assistance. And so we, we need an eviction moratorium to cover that period until we're um, in, in sync with the resources that are available. How, how optimistic are you at this time um, about uh, getting some of this legislation uh, passed? I am um, optimistic about the grace period. Um, mm -hmm. You know, from what I've observed, our landlords um, understand that they need time as well for for their tenants to, to get that, that resource. And so the grace period, um, I, I think, is, um, is palatable um, to that industry. Okay. I'm really hopeful that people understand how dire it is for for people who are living in tents. Um, people need to need to sleep, um, and there are not enough um, shelters. Um, so it's not okay to make to criminalize people um, for for just needing a place to rest. So I'm I'm hopeful people will understand how important that is. Great. Well, we're, we're speaking with Kim McCarty and, and Koya Crespin from the Community Alliance of Tenants. Um, how can our listeners who are currently struggling to pay their rent learn about their options and get assistance? I could take that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Koya. I think, uh, it makes a lot of sense for folks to definitely be reaching out to orgs like Community Alliance of Tenants. Um, we can help folks tap in to a couple of different ways to engage. There's obviously the legislative um, aspects of Cancel the Rent, and then there's also the community organizing aspects of Cancel the Rent. Um, I think that there's this uh, idea that cancel the rent is some type of slogan or just um, that it's not real. And cancel the rent is a real policy that includes several interlocking components, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's really important for folks to tap in with CAT, um, tap in with your neighborhood unions, North, Port North Portland Tenants Collective. Shout out to them. They're doing amazing work in the North. Excellent. Right? Um, there's East There's East Portland um, Tenants Union as well, who's also ramping it up. And um, CAT is doing our best to support these um, local unions in the Portland Metro and beyond, obviously, as we're statewide. Um, and just one last um, tidbit on Cancel the Rent being mm -hmm. a policy, not a slogan. And I just wanted to point out that like defund the police started out as people saying it was a slogan. And mm -hmm. look where we're at with that. There's cities across America who are um, taking funds from police who do not need them um, to brutalize our communities and pushing them into um, programs that will actually help sustain folks. 
Well, thank you both, uh, Kim McCarty and Koya Crespin from uh, Community Alliance of Tenants. Thank you both for uh, your time this morning. Um, OregonCAT.org, OregonCAT.org is uh, the website uh, for the Community Alliance of Tenants. Uh, There's more information there. Um, Thank you for the work that you're doing uh, for our community. and, And again, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. Thanks to Kim and Koya for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in just about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. Next week, the team is going to take a well-deserved break for spring break, and we will be back the following week. We'll be back on Monday, April 5th. X-Ray.